Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, why we are what we speak with linguist Rob Drummond and his new book, Your Old Talk. Rob Drummond is Professor of Sociolinguistics at Manchester Metropolitan University, where he researches and teaches about the relationship between how we speak and who we are. He recently completed a large project exploring the accents and dialects of Greater Manchester, touring the region in his accent van. He appears regularly on TV and radio, talking about language-related issues, and spent some time as a resident linguist on BBC Radio 3's The Verb, as well as appearing on the BBC Breakfast Sofa. And today we're here to talk about Rob's book, Your All Talk, Why We Are What We Speak. Rob, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell us what the idea is behind the book then. So it's it's a book about, as you say, the relationship between spoken language and identity, or how we speak and who we are, and whether that's through things like uh, you know regional accents, different ways of speaking depending on where we're from, or whether it's to do with accents related to social class, to gender, to race and ethnicity. We speak in different ways because of various aspects of our social life, our social being. And I'm really interested in that link between the sounds that come out of our mouth and the ways in which we're then perceived as people and the way in which we kind of perceive ourselves as well. And we'll talk in the main about what I would call an accent, but you mentioned that linguists describe an accent in a wider way. So what do you mean by an accent? Yeah, I think sometimes when we when we just sort of use the word accent, what immediately springs to mind is an accent that relates to a particular place. So you could have a, a London accent or a Manchester accent or a US accent. And I think for us, when we're studying these things, obviously region is one important part of things, but the way we speak is also very much affected or very much related to other things apart from just regions, such as social class, race and ethnicity, gender, sexuality, all of these things. And also the way we kind of adjust the way we speak, depending on the kind of context we're in. So I think when as sort of linguists studying speech varieties, which we often kind of refer to to get away from the, the kind of notion of accent, maybe we have a sort of a broader sense of using it to describe the sounds of language, the sounds that people produce when they're speaking a language. 
And we're going to be talking in the main here about English and various different variations of it and often how that has you know, pushed out other languages. And you talk in the book about how what we think of now as, as modern English developed in this country, in England, um, how that develops through Old English to Middle English to Modern English. But at some point in that journey, there is something called the Great Vowel Shift. So tell us what that is. Yeah, so that's a that's a I kind of think I describe it as a, a bit of linguistic mystery, really, and and the mystery around any spoken language, any language, whatever it is, is the fact that it it changes all the time. And so when we think of and, and people often say, you know, we don't speak English the same way now that we did in Shakespeare's time or Chaucer's time or whatever. And then even even more recently, we can we can say that you know our accents aren't quite the same as those of our grandparents, or if we hold if we hear old recordings from people from even from the same place as us, they sound different. So even the same accents are changing; they're adjusting. Now, when we're talking about those adjustments, we're talking about really small things. We're talking about particular sounds just changing really slightly, particular vowel sounds especially. Now, what happened at one point? in history, so around the 15th and 16th centuries in England, was what's called the Great Vowel Shift, where there really was a more significant shift of vowel sounds. And what this means is that particular words which had a particular sound gradually started being pronounced with a slightly different vowel. Now, once that change has occurred, then the words that had that that second vowel, they sort of had to change because uh, you know, to help differentiate words. And the whole vowel kind of system is, you know, it, it exists in this in this kind of, well, yeah, it exists in a, in a system. It is a vowel system that vowel sounds need to sound different from one another in order to help us differentiate words. If we have a word like uh, bit and a word like bet, those two words are only distinguishable because the vowel sound is different. And so if one of those vowels started changing, if the vowel in bit started sounding a bit more like the vowel sound in bet, then that bet vowel would have to change as well. Now, this all doesn't happen overnight at all. It happens over, you know, say the great vowel shift took place over over a kind of couple of centuries. So it's not the case that everyone suddenly woke up sounding different. But once those changes take place, that kind of represented quite a significant shift in the way English sounded. And so that's a big reason why, you know, looking back at any kind of writing from before that time, it's really quite hard to read with the vowel system we have. And so if you, if you hear somebody who's kind of, uh, you know, there are various people around who are quite good at, at kind of recreating the English from, from this kind of time, it sounds quite different. It sounds different to our own English. And that also helps to account for our kind of weird spelling in English as well. Um, the fact that certain, once language is written down, that's kind of fixed then. We, have, we don't change the way we spell words. We haven't changed the way we spell words for a long time. But the pronunciation of those sounds, those letters, has changed over that time, which is why we end up with quite an opaque sort of system between sound and spelling in English. But all of these things are happening. Uh, th- these changes are happening in all languages all the time just usually very, very gradually. And we're obviously talking here about accents in terms of spoken English as well, but what difference then does the the invention of the printing press make to English? 
Well, so yeah. So when you when you have the printing press, you know that has a big effect in terms of it starts to make things a bit more standardised. So obviously, people were writing things down. Things you know, writing was was happening, but there were loads of variations in that writing. You know, things were written by hand, and you have kind of monks, uh, you know, transcribing things. But they would be written in a way that uh, reflected the language that they had. And each, each person who was transcribed, you know, each kind of scribe would have a different way of doing things. But once you have somebody, you know, once you have somebody who comes along to start printing things, so you've got kind of William, William Caxton came along in, you know, the late 15th century. Once that happens, you're obviously going to start standardising things because you're printing text, you're printing language that then gets shared with more people. That's the whole purpose of the printing press is to have to be able to generate far greater number of copies of texts. So when that came about, he had to make a decision. He had to kind of think, well, which variety of English am I going to use? Because there were so many different varieties at the time. Nothing, you know, nothing was written down permanently in, in that sense, in terms of mass publication or mass sharing, anything like that. So by settling in the area which had the power in England, so in the southeast around London, I think he set up in Westminster, you're going to start to use, or he decided to use, the language, the varieties of English that the people in power were using. So he used the language of the people of London and of London and of Oxford and of Cambridge and of that kind of area of the southeast of England. And so by doing that, he's almost starting to create this standard version of language. And because that version of language of English is the same one that is used by the people of power, that automatically gives it that sense of prestige. And so then that becomes the variety of English that other people want to emulate or kind of need to understand in order to understand these texts and to, and to kind of participate in society at that level. And so it gives it a kind of, it gives it a prestige, which wasn't necessarily intentional. He didn't set out to standardise the language. It's almost a, a kind of a, a byproduct of the printing press. And that obviously leads us to, as you said, a, a standard English or what we now call or what we used to call received pronunciation or BBC English, that, that sort of voice familiar from, you know, 100 newsreaders. But obviously not everybody speaks like that. And, you know, if I was to say something to you, Rob, like, I don't know, I'm going to put a hat made of butter on my cat <laughs> from you know notwithstanding the bizarre behavior what might a person infer about me from that statement well yeah that's it there are certain linguistic features so but just to step back a bit with the whole the whole rp thing came i guess a little bit later there's the standardized language in terms of standardizing sort of written written english which is what the printing press did you know started the process of but then in terms of pronunciation, because, again, things were still changing. Pronunciations were still changing. All this did was start to standardise writing and, and dialect, if you like, which I guess we should sort of quickly separate. If you've got accent and dialect of the two, kind of dialect is the bigger term. Dialect is generally refers to a variety of language which relates to the words people use and the grammar and the structure and that kind of thing and the pronunciation, whereas accent is specifically pronunciation, only pronunciation. And so that sense of received pronunciation or BBC English did come quite a bit later. But again, for the same reasons, had that acquired prestige because it was the accent used by the people in power, which is a really, really important thing to remember, is that there's nothing objectively better about received pronunciation or BBC English or standard English in terms of writing and grammar. There's nothing better about that. It's purely 
that those are the varieties of English that are used by the people in power who have prestige. So therefore, those are the accents that acquire that prestige, that have that prestige, that people then see as the ones to emulate, the ones that are sounding a bit posh and a bit educated and that we should aspire to. So when then somebody uses features, uh, it, you know, has an accent where there are particular features which don't have, you know, aren't within received pronunciation, it stands out as something different. And so, for example, having that kind of what's called a glottal stop in a word like butter, so butter instead of butter, that's a really, a really common, often stigmatized sound. It's a tiny sound. It's, it's you know, think about the difference between butter and butter or t and uh. It's not much different when you're talking about, you know, thinking about how sounds are made, but it has a huge difference in the way spoken language is perceived. If somebody does that, they might think of it as dropping their T's or, you know, this, that's how it's described. So butter and hat and better, all of those things, uh, it gives people some kind of insights into that person's possible background. And that may be a class-related thing. It may be a region-related thing, because obviously that kind of glottal stops, T-glottling, is quite common in, in the southeast of England, in a kind of Cockney, you know, not the, not the posh southeast of England bit where all the prestige is, but the kind of, you know, Cockney side of things. And so there's that real sort of class element to that. And so, you know, that's how it's perceived. So if somebody starts using glottal stops all the time, other people listening will whether consciously or unconsciously, we'll think, okay, you know, that's working class. It's a, you know, a class differentiator, I guess. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Little Atoms, or should I say Little Atoms? I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Rob Drummond, and we're talking about his book, Your Old Talk, Why We Are What We Speak. And Rob, just staying with that, the whole glottal stop thing and everything, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by this stuff. And there was a line in this book that just absolutely drove me wild for a bit, where you talk about put and put. So I will put the golf ball with my putting iron and then put the pin back in the hole. Right? I say put and put exactly the same. And not only that, and I don't know, maybe I'm denser than most people, but I could not even conceive how you could possibly say the two things differently. And I was lying on my bed reading this book and saying the two things over and over to myself. And also, I happen to live with an American. And so I, I came in and got her to say it. And she said, yes, I say those two things differently. And I had to get her to say it four or five times before I could actually spot that there was a difference there. So I guess why? Why can't I tell the difference between put and put? 
Yeah, that's a, okay. That's a really good question, and it's 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 a question that I deal with every single year when I get a new intake of students, and we're teaching phonetics. You know, the study of sounds. So what this is is what we okay. Technically, what we're talking about is the foot strut split, or lack of the foot strut split. Now, what this is is we give names to vowels. All right. So we talk about. You might have seen in the dictionary when you look up a word and you'll see. Um, you'll see it written in kind of odd symbols or these kind of phonemic symbols. So that's one way of describing sounds. But, you know, not everyone has access to that. And it's hard to talk about different sounds when you're just using symbols like that. So we give each, this system was devised by a phonetician called uh, John Wells quite a while ago. And each vowel has a name. So we talk about the dress vowel, which is e, or the, the trap vowel, a, or the lot vowel, o. And these are kind of groups of vowels kind of vowels that will act the same in an accent. So for example, we talk about the dress vowel, you can talk about the dress lexical set. There'll be a whole group of words which have that same vowel. And if you pronounce the vowel within this group of words, in any one accent, you'll pronounce the vowel in the same way, but that might differ in a different accent. So it's a nice way of being able to describe differences between accents. Anyway, we have the foot vowel, which is the vowel sound in foot or for most people, book. Um, or good. And then we have the strut vowel, which is the vowel in words like sun or butter or fun uh, or come and all those kind of... So now the thing is, in some accents, there is a difference between those two vowel sounds, the foot vowel and the strut vowel. So those accents have a foot strut split. So for example, in my accent, I'm from the southeast of England, those two sounds are different. So for the two words you said, put as in P-U-T has the foot vowel, uh, and putt as in putting a golf ball, P-U-T-T has the strut vowel, which is for me, putt. So it's putt and put, or uh and uh. However, for accents kind of in England, if we're talking about the moment, in the Midlands and North, certainly in the North of England, there isn't that distinction. Okay, there is no foot strut split. It's the same vowel sound. So you'll have put and put. It's the same sound. And the reason it's so hard for you to make that difference is it simply doesn't exist. You don't have that strut vowel sound. You don't have that uh sound in your sound system. It just doesn't exist. So it's really hard for you to produce that. And if you ever did try, because, you know, and then I'll get my students. So any students basically from the north of England, they don't have that sound. And so we'll try and get them to produce it. And they'll always kind of overshoot and it becomes like a, a more of an ah sound. So it's sort of trying to say, trying to get them to say sun, how I say it. And I'll end up like san, ah, san. Like it almost overshoots into, a, into an ah sound. But then I always tell them not to worry because even though I'm saying they don't have this vowel sound and I have this vowel sound, they'll have other vowel sounds that I don't have in my language. So for example, I might find a student from, I don't know, from where I live at the moment in Bolton or Berry or, you know, or lots of places over in kind of Yorkshire where how I would say a face becomes much more like air, like face and get. And I don't have that vowel, but they have that vowel. So each language and each variety of a language so each accent in english has a slightly might have a slightly different vowel system and those are the differences between accents basically it's those slightly different vowel systems just one or two sounds can be different and it changes the whole accent 
in a similar vein, I had hours of fun last night getting my wife to say the word arm. So um, let's talk about what roticity is and use that as an introduction to talk about, I guess, why American English became so different from English English over the years. Yeah, so with terms of roticity, so yeah, good word like arm or car, any word with an R in it, kind of after a vowel. So we're not talking about words that begin with an R. Everybody pronounces those R's. But in most British English accents, no, actually, let's change that. In most English English accents, as in the English in England, most English English accents don't pronounce the R in words where it comes after a vowel. So if you think about the spelling, like a word like arm, it's just an R sound and a M, arm, or car. It's just a K and an R, car. But there are a few accents in England which do pronounce that. And there's a little bit in the northwest of England around kind of Blackburn and a little bit in the southwest of England. And they still have that R sound. And that is what roticity is. Roticity describes that, the pronunciation of the, of the R sound. And so we can talk about accents being rhotic or non-rhotic. And most English English accents are non-rhotic, apart from those two areas. Most Scottish accents are rhotic, where they do pronounce the R in a word like arm. It'd be arm with a R. And most US accents are also rhotic. And so that's what, so that's a big, again, a big difference between the two. And you'll often find what we do when we're studying accents, when we're thinking about accents, is, you know, like I said, there's, it's only a few sounds which differ usually between accents. Most, most sounds are the same, otherwise we wouldn't understand one another. But there's a few sounds that are different. And what, we, what we'll do is we'll listen out for those. So if I'm trying to analyse an accent or trying to work out where someone is from, which we're not necessarily particularly good at all the time, working out where people are from, but if we're, we're thinking about an accent, um, we'll listen out for those key words. So if I'm thinking whether this is a kind of a where to place this accent or something interesting about this particular accent, you kind of start to listen out for those words. Well, are they pronouncing the R's? Is it a rhotic accent? Okay, if it is, then it's likely to be, you know, US or Scottish or whatever, or, or lots of other varieties. Going back to those other vowel sounds, listen out for those, that face vowel, listen out for that strut vowel. You know, you, you know which words to listen for. So yeah, that's the, a big difference between, like I say, most US accents and most English English accents is roticity or a lack of roticity. And so why is that? Why is the difference? What became of the American accent over the years? That's really because, well, this is an interesting point, because if, you know, I said before about how we have a really kind of lax relationship between spelling and writing and sound, spelling and pronunciation in English, partly because, well, mainly because sounds have changed, but spelling hasn't. Spelling has remained the same while the, the way we pronounce things has changed. But that means that in the English spelling system, every letter must have had a purpose at some point in any word, because, you know, writing is obviously the representation of speech, because speech came first. Every, you know, people naturally speak, but you learn to write. Writing is an in invented thing. So for any, any particular word, how, how it's spelled, that every letter in that word must have represented a sound at some point. So all of our English words with R, that R must have been pronounced. That's, you know, that was the standard, you know, way that the usual way of pronouncing things. So in England, as I said, speech changes, sounds change. So at some point, a change would have occurred. Also, when I say it's a linguistic mystery, because nobody really knows why sound changes. We know that sounds change and we know 
we can work out how sound changes are spread, but nobody really knows why sound changes in the first place. Anyway, going back to rotisti, in England, everyone would have been rhotic at one point. That was the norm. And then a change started happening where certain accents started not pronouncing the R so much, certain areas of the country, and that spread. So, you know, maybe it was because it, it started in the kind of in the southeast of England where the prestige kind of accents are, and then, and then that spread. And it, it spread gradually until it's almost gone, as we said, just a little bit hanging on in the northwest and a little bit hanging on in the southwest. However, when English was kind of transported over to what, what became the United States, those people would have been rhotic. And so American English started off as a rhotic accent. And while it also would have changed, because like I said, all accents change, all natural languages change, unstoppable, but it changed in a different way. It developed in a different way and it kept that rhoticity. So that's, that's the difference. That's where the difference started. And so once those two, once the people went over to, to what became the United States and kind of settled there, their variety of English developed one way and the variety of English in England developed another way. That's why we have that kind of separation. It's often difficult to spot regional accents from a different country. So, for instance, my wife is from Rhode Island and she can tell the difference between a Rhode Island accent and a Boston accent, even though they are very close to each other and I can't. But likewise, she struggles to understand the difference between a Mancunian and the Liverpudlian accent, whereas to me, these two things are extremely different, even though they're, you know, they're only a few miles apart. But we both agreed that we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between different Australian accents. However, it turns out that we might not be unusual in that because they might not even exist. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, uh, a good observation. And, and that's very true that you, you just don't, in a language that you're, you know, we're still talking in English, but in, um, but the same is true for other languages, doesn't it? Even if you speak, say you speak French, you're an English speaker, but you, you've learned French, you might not be able to kind of pick up on the different accents in French. Likewise, a French person learning English might not pick up on the differences accents in English. But yeah, the same between US and uh, and UK English. And it is just that familiarity. We just, you know, we kind of hear things on a kind of broader level first, and then it takes time to get those nuance. So we just hear US, we hear an American accent. And I guess if we, we could probably listen to two people next to each other with different accents and go, okay, yeah, yeah, I guess they do sound slightly different. I'm not sure why, but they're a bit different in the same way that you might, your wife even though she might not identify that's Liverpudlian, that's Mancunian. But, you know, maybe if she heard two people next to each other thinking, OK, no, yeah, I can hear that they're different. I'm not sure what's different, but I can hear they're a bit different. So that kind of more nuanced kind of perception obviously takes time and, and familiarity. So then in Australia, yeah, that's a, again, Australia is a really interesting point because, yeah, there is there's much less regional differentiation in Australia. And that's mainly due to the length of time that English there has had to develop. It's, it's got a far shorter history in Australia. English as a language has a far shorter history in Australia than it has in the US and, of course, in the UK. So while the same thing should be happening, you've got a group of people kind of go over to Australia 
And whatever accent they had from England, you know, go over to Australia from the UK, whatever accent they had, that's the kind of the starting point, And then it will develop in its own way. The difference, of course, is that as well as it being a shorter history, it's also a history that had kind of mass communication far more quickly. So English in, in the UK had, you know, years, centuries, centuries to develop and change and adapt and whatever, until we started getting confronted with, you know, radio and TV and everybody hearing the same accents all the time. And the same in the US, lots of time to have all those differences um, happen before things become a little bit more homogenized, but obviously not entirely. But in Australia, you just didn't have that history that didn't have that length of time for changes to really take place before there's kind of mass communication and mass travel and people being in contact with each other. So that's, that's the main reason. There are differences in Australian English, but they're not nearly as stark as um, differences in US English or even more so differences in UK English. And yet they do all sound Australian. So like everybody in Australia who speaks Australian English sounds like an Australian. So how does that happen if there's not also divergence of regional accents across the place? How does somebody in Sydney sound the same as somebody in Perth? Yeah, so what will have what will have happened there is that, like, say the the original people that went out there, and and people, it'd be interesting to ask uh, ask your wife this actually with English, because a lot of people, a lot of kind of Americans often confuse an Australian accent with a British accent, or you know can't tell the difference necessarily between the two. You know, Australian does sound quite British because again, the people kind of coming over first went over to Australia, the first English speaking people who went over to Australia, it was generally sort of from the southeast of England. There's a there's a London focus there. So it's a little bit already kind of Southeast England type thing. But then those changes would have, when you've got the next generation, there's already slight changes taking place. And it's those people that their version, which isn't a million miles away, like I say, from Southeast England English, but those distinctive Australian uh, features kind of take hold and then kind of mixed with also with uh, Aboriginal languages, people they were coming into contact with. So that's had an influence, which, again, is what's maybe pushed it to be different from Southeast England English. And then that's spread, but in a much more homogenous way, like I say, really because it hasn't had that time to develop into different ways of speaking within different areas. It just hasn't hasn't had that time and it hasn't had that period of people being isolated in different places whereas in the US and UK people were isolated there were groups of people that were isolated so their varieties were able to develop in different ways so we're out of time and I'm 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 sorry to say that I've um, I've hogged most of the conversation to talk about regional accents here because I'm so fascinated by it but there is loads of wonderful stuff in this book about um particularly around prejudice against certain types of perceived inferior modes of talking um whether that's African American English all the way to like vocal fry and up talking which is all great but obviously you'll have to buy the book to read that so um I've been talking to to Rob Drummond about his book, You're All Talk, Why We Are What We Speak. And it's out now in the UK from Scribe. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.